Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Lotus Eaters for today, the 25th of September to Monday, 2023. I am joined by Dan and Charlie. Afternoon. Hello. Right, gents. And today we're going to be talking about clapping for the Waffen SS. That's going to be taken out of context. That's not good, is it? Uh, the plight of the publican and if conservatives could please stop being containment for about five minutes. That's unlikely. Wonderful. Well, without further ado, let's jump into today's black pills. Yes. Yeah, so, um, look, I'm going to have to start this segment with a bit of a caveat. I am an economist and not a historian. So what I did do for this is I did sit down with our in-house historian and I just double-checked a couple of points. The first point is I am right in thinking the Nazis are bad. And, and he confirmed that that was indeed the case. I also got in to confirm that the Waffen SS was extra bad. They, That's what they say. Yes. They were like the, yes. the elite unit. I've seen a Deadliest Warrior episode on them. They had cool flamethrowers, but obviously we don't know <laughs> what they did. Yes, apparently, apparently the, the guys operating in the East because they, um, they took part in the, in the Holocaust, which was, mm. which was double plus bad. Yeah. So, so having confirmed that I was you know, basically not barking up the wrong tree with this stuff with our in-house historian, um, you know, we can jump on. And, and look, even without being a historian, I can tell you that you know, growing up in Western culture, it, it, it becomes very obvious that you are taught from your earliest days that they were, in fact, the worst people in history. Yes. The very worst. I mean, worse than the Aztecs and the Assyrians and the Golden Horde. They, they were the absolute bottom tier of this, the worst people. They were the, the, they were the final boss of history. Basically. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, in, in fact, if you want to learn more about um, history, why don't you go to our website where we've got this uh, current code and we've got, a whole, we've got a whole history section called Epochs, which is very good, which is done by Carl when he's not on holiday and Bo. And uh, because Carl is on holiday, you can use the code SARGON to get, um, was it 50% off your membership for the next three months? So um, do do that. Not on Subscribestar, but on the website. So, you know, do that. Now, so it, the, the whole point is that the whole foundation of our liberal society is basically we're the good guys, Nazis are the bad guys, mm. which is why you can't get into a debate with most people who are a bit low IQ, but have nevertheless gone through the educational process without them calling you a Nazi fairly, fairly swiftly into yeah, this. Godwin's law, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and the SS, of course, were the, as you say, they are the, 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 the spear tip of the, of, of the, of the, of the bad. Hmm. Um, you know, they were involved in things like massacre of civilians and, you know, war crimes against prisoners of war. So they, didn't, they, they were famous for not taking the Geneva Convention seriously when they captured anyone. Um, small matter of genocide, they did that. Um, so they played a significant role in the Holocaust. Atrocities in Eastern Europe, mass killings, um, brutality against civilian population, wiping out villages, all that kind of stuff. Ethnic cleansing, forced deportations. Um, in fact, it got so bad with those particular chaps that after the war, the, um, uh, the, the Nuremberg trials, they got together and at an international military tribunal, they decided uh, that they were a criminal organization and um, proceeded on sort of tracking them down, you know, those, those who hadn't been apprehended. So I think, we, I think we're pretty sure that they are indeed um, bad guys. Now, who were they fighting? Let's go to um, here. We go this. So, so the the people that the um, the, the the nasty Axis types were fighting were um, that's Churchill. He he represents the um, the, the the British and also the uh, the Commonwealth places such as Canada, for example. Um, that was an American chap, and apparently the guy on the end was a Russian. So, um, if you were fighting against these guys, um, you know, uh, from from that side, you know, that would be a bad. So. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna ignore the fact, of course, that that Stalin was equally as terrible, and we're not going to examine that. Oh no, no, at, that at, part of the narrative. At, at as well. this time, he was good old. He he was being promoted as good old Uncle Joe. At this yes, point. yeah, and, Friend and, enemy. And, and Churchill had absolutely no knowledge of the various Soviet prison complex networks that he handed the prisons of war back over to, because there's no complications on that side either. It's just that, yes. that's that's the narrative. Got it? 
Fantastic. Yes. Good. Yes. Okay. That, that, that is exactly a no. So imagine my surprise when the Canadian Parliament did this. We've got a video of. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. For those of you uh, uh, listening to this, this is the Canadian Parliament giving a uh, round of applause. A standing ovation. A, sta- a standing ovation, yes. In fact, um, we, 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 we cut the sound about because this, this ovation goes on for a while. Uh, then there's then there's a you know then there's another round of applause and then a second standing ovation. It's so, Soviet levels of applause. Well, I was yes. going to say it reminds me of the story that Solzhenitsyn tells in Gulag Archipelago, where there was some party dictator. It might have even actually been Stalin. Yeah. Um, he was giving a speech, and then everyone stood up and gave a round of applause, and they kept applauding for about half an hour because no one wanted to be the first person to stop. Yeah. The first person that did stop because was then sent off yeah. to, a, to sent off to a Gulag. Yes, yes, it, it was so, so lots and lots of applause for this guy who 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 fought in the fir, in the Second World War. Who was ninety? Now, why um, I've got to say why the parliamentarians did not twig um, on this? Um, you know, when when the when the speaker there said he fought against the Russians, right? Well, who so was what unit was he in? Well, well, yeah. So 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 maybe they, even though. The boomer truth regime puts the Second World War as the founding of the liberal order, and that's all that's in the education system. Yes. I mean, I've studied it about three times over the course of mm-hmm. secondary school history. Maybe they didn't understand that the Nazi-Soviet pact was quite short, and the Canadians probably weren't involved in the war with any immediate skirmishes at that time. Yeah, but that, that was the entire parliament. Yeah, yeah. maybe but, maybe they maybe they're all a bit dim. Because I did I did speak to to, to Bo, our, our history buff, about this, yeah. and apparently, yeah, there was a couple of months where you could be. Fighting the Russians and not necessarily be, you know, one of the bad guys. Yes. Um, but that that's very nuanced, and and, and it's, it's interesting that nobody in that Canadian Parliament um, twigged who they who they were, were were clapping for. Now we we will come to exactly who they were clapping for, but uh, let's just. Uh, yep, there we go. So so there is uh, Justin Trudeau leading the applause. He's he's looking very happy. Um, we got Voldemort Zelensky there, um, doing a little fist pump, and his and, wife as well. Oh, is that his wife? Yes. Oh, okay. Is. And and is that is that Christina Freeland? Oh no, I might, oh I I would assume his wife is in the chamber then. But is that Freeland there as well? Well, because Freeland's yeah. granddad was well, yes, Nazi. Wasn't yes, it? I mean she she yeah. she. I mean she's looking very happy there. She presumably hasn't been that happy with an old guy since her granddad uh, explained what he did during the war. Yeah. Do you want to read my diaries? Yes. <laughs> and um, you know, I I don't want to just have a dig at you know Freeland. Um, you know, I I would take a pop at um Justin's uh, granddad. Only I don't know who that is. Well, who, who was Fidel Castro's father? Well, I, I, I don't want to go there. All, all, all I will say is, look, I, I don't know for sure who who's Justin's dad is, um, but uh, no, that, that's not fair. He, he's in the following photo. There we go. Oh, th- th- there's Justin's dad. Ah, there he is. Yes. If you're if you're uh, listening, I'll I'll let you uh, catch up on that joke. That actually, uh, to be fair, that does look like one of his least convincing blackface get-ups as well, doesn't it? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was much more authentic as Harry Belafonte singing Deo. Yes. Or is now, that actually? Is that actually him in the middle? Uh, it could be. Like, like, oh, hang on a minute. Is that Overfidel's shoulder? Is that Josh? <laughs> <laughs> Just hiding. Just recognised through the hair. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, continue yes. with. Continue yeah. No. With... So it, it turns out the person when they were clapping was um, 
uh, Yaroslav Hunker. Bless you. Yes. Uh, uh, who, who was a cra- Ukrainian nationalist who joined the... Um, oh, he, he joined the SS. He, he, he was part of the SS uh, Galachnia Division, um, which operated... Um, oh, in, um, in the Ukraine. Ah. ah. So, so we just saw the entire Canadian parliament there applauding for a literal member of the Waffen SS. Well, given by Justin Trudeau's activity for the last few years, it is on brand. <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's not good, is it? I mean, let, let's remember that, that, that Trudeau, not so long ago, was saying that, um, that you know, remember those freedom truckers? Yes. Mm. That helped bring an end to the, uh, the tyranny we were all experiencing not so long ago. Um, it, was, it was Trudeau who said that they were a fringe minority and that uh, they included Nazis. Yeah, he said they were often sexist, often racist, and I forget which Canadian MP it was because Ben had it in his book, and we've covered yes. the clip before. But she was she was Jewish, and she stood up and said that actually them honking the horns, they they were doing two honks, so it was H H, which <laughs> was code for hail mid century right. Germans. No doubt, okay. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so so the so the truckers were apparently Nazis because they occasionally honked, um, but the Canadian Parliament was just. Just filmed giving two standing ovations to a literal SS Waffen SS soldier. I, I imagine the Canadian Parliament are now going to round up all the geese in the country and shoot them as well. <laughs> Even being charitable about this, though, like let's assume none of them knew who who this guy was. It just shows you the power of like the current thing mindset, doesn't it? Yeah. Where it's like this guy poses but, the bad guys, the Russians. Yeah, but, but that, that's why I opened with. I mean, the, the the speaker literally read out he fought against the Russians. Yeah. He, but all they hear is that's all they hear. Yeah. The Russians, Russians and Russians yeah. are the current end. So it was it was the whole parliament going. Eh. Surely some of them must have had an, enough of a basic understanding about history to say, "Hang on." So we had the Axis and the Allies. The Russians were on the Allies side. So who was he fighting for? But anything anything post thirty eight through to like ninety one is just a blob of Russia bad. End of history. Progressivism good. And so they just can't disaggregate the timeline because they're too thick. It, it reminds me of um, 1984. We have always been at war with uh, Eurasia yes. mm. type, type of yeah. energy. We've, we've always been at war with Russia. In fact, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, th- th- this is part of the reason why we have such a sophisticated PSYOP program um, in the Western world today because of exactly that image that I showed you earlier, the one with um, good old Uncle Joe, mm. because we were bigging him up for years as this is good old Uncle, Uncle Joe Stalin, um, you know, he's our man. He he he's the friendly uncle from from the east. We picked him up for so long, and then all of a sudden, after the war ended, we needed to pivot enemies. So now we had to suddenly flip from good old Uncle Joe to this other thing. So all of that um, uh, war era um, intelligence operations suddenly got flipped inwards, mm. and and now we had to sort of suddenly demonize good old Uncle Joe and flip this whole kind of thing around. Well, there's something interesting as well that's been repeatedly pointed out by people that we like over at Timcast, and that is in 2013, I believe, the Obama administration re- repealed a piece of legislation that then allowed them to deliberately propagandize the American public. Yeah. And things have gotten a lot worse since then. Oh, because and they so, blatantly are. Yeah, yeah, and so all of those intelligence service apparatus were focused externally on yes. disinformation on foreign countries. And all you need to do is pull out that one little Jenga block, stopping them from doing it to their own people, and yep. then suddenly you get a day... Oh, and, and they'd most definitely be doing it before that. They just hadn't had the legal cover to do it. They, yes. they were just going ahead with it. And actually, I mean, our friend um, um, AA, who, um, who, who did some work on this, he found that they had a budget, I think it was of $200 billion mm. back in the 1940s. 
to to sigh up their own population. That was really insane. That James Burnham at the top of it as well. Like, yeah, like big. Yeah, he, 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 he was he was doing yeah. our version of it. Oh, yeah. that was the Rockefellers yeah. that were in charge of that, wasn't it? Yep. Right. That that element as well. So anyway, so Canadian Parliament uh, applauding a, a literal Waffen SS Nazi. So so I just I I don't often do this, but I made a meme myself. Very uh, Callum of you, Dan. Yes, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> uh, for those of you listening, it is uh, who's this character? It's, it's just David Mitchell. Yeah, it's David Mitchell. Yeah. It, it's it's that meme of of the Nazi saying, "Are we the bad guys now?" So I flipped it around. Hands, are we the good guys now? Because our caps have got skulls on them. <laughs> are we the baddies? <laughs> we, we we're being applauded in the Canadian Parliament. Are we the good guys now? Um, this was a good thread. Um, I, I won't go um, directly to the whole thing, but uh, this basically this this guy basically points out because you might say, okay, well, the SS was was quite a large organisation. I mean, they they started off as, as I understand, as Hitler's bodyguards originally, as the SA in the Brown Church, and then they kind of got built up and built up, and then there were there was hundreds of thousands of them as a sort of police force, and then by the time the war came, there was millions of them, um, and they got all the best gear, and they were sort of going out there and you know doing their their, their war type stuff. So he might have just been the the, the paper boy or the or the runner for as well as because as it, because it was such a large organization. Maybe he was shuffling the paper back in Berlin or something. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe he was just sort of like forced into it as a young kid and had to stick through it, and then he but bravely he, joined. But he, he was young. But the the division that he joined, um, as the guy in in this red points out, was um, was operating in um, in Ukraine. Um, where there are numerous reports of uh, villages being burnt and civilian populations being wiped out, including um, you know one particularly prominent case, which was a um, a, a Polish um, town being wiped out um, over a civilian over a thousand civilians killed. So right. um, so yeah. So if he was the paper boy, that's wasn't wasn't. Wasn't yes, the least that's not good. Places. And, and, and as Bo points out, I mean, a lot of this is obscured by the, by the sort of fog of history, but if you were in the SS in, on the Eastern Front during the late stages of the war, you could not not be involved in the Holocaust. Sorry, it's just it's quite absurd. Like, it, the fog of history. Oh, okay, how unclear is it? Well, you were in the SS. Yes. Um, I mean, normally, yeah, normally the conversation would end at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, normally wouldn't get further there. Yeah. Um, and, and this thread goes on to point out that in this particular guy's case, Hunker, um, so at the end of the war in 1945, um, he uh, surrendered to British forces in Italy. He was held as a prisoner of war until 1947. Um, after that, um, him and some other SS members resettled in Canada uh, because they've always had a very progressive um, immigration policy and, and, and continue to this day. Not Argentina? That's surprising. No. Uh, no, he, you presumably had to be a higher rank right. uh, okay. to, to get the invite there. Um, now he he did come under in the, the guy who was applauded in in the parliament. He did come under investigation for war crimes. Um, in fact, a whole bunch of his unit were, and some of them got prosecuted for um, war crimes. But he individually wasn't because of a lack of evidence in his particular case. He was right. probably innocent then. Yeah, he probably well, did nothing. Yes. Wrong. Yeah, I mean, apart from uh, you know, apart from, from being, that literally small being matter, in yes. the SS. Again, can I can I just point out that yes. Russell Brand, again, no matter what you think about the man's character, the veracity of said allegations, he's not had it presented in the court of law. Mm. There's zero evidence, but he's had his entire livelihood taken away and hounded by all of British media and the government. Um, yes. Well, government committees that aren't the actual government, whatever. This guy just got a standing ovation in the in the Parliament for maybe conducting the Holocaust. Uh, well, as as Bo points out, it would be it would be almost inconceivable you could be a member of the SS operating in this region of the war and not be directly involved in the Holocaust. It's almost inconceivable, right? In the 1980s, this guy, um, the the Canadian um, government, investigated this chap and other SS members who were who were living in Canada over 
concerns that they concealed their SS membership when entering Canada. However, no charges were filed against him at that time. Um, and in 2000, several, um, several prominent historians tried to pressure the Canadian government to get this guy um, and other members of his unit um, have, their, have their Canadian citizen stripped from them. Although um, that ultimately was, was not a successful um, effort. So, so look, we, we, we've got a young man here who, who joined the SS um, so, so you know, we can say that in his favour. He he was he was a young man. He wasn't a major or a colonel in the SS or anything like that. I mean, you know, he he was low level, um, and he never ultimately got charged with a crime. So, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad. I mean, I mean, it's not as bad as say, for example, um, being one of those young men who um, was president January six. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Jacob you know, Chansley, the QAnon shaman. Yes, worse than the SS. Oh, well, obviously. I mean, we we can see obviously that that must be the case because you know those young men at January the sixth. You know, they got the book thrown at them. Yeah, you know, they, they they're getting tortured even to this day with months and months of solitary confinement. Um, you know, they're basically being um, denied trial, and where they are being given trial, it's being heavily rigged against them, and the judges are suitable judges are being found to make sure that they go away for an incredibly long period of time. But that's obviously worse than being a member of the SS during the Holocaust. So wait, does that mean that? On the rank of historical atrocities, according to the American Empire, nine eleven is more important than the Holocaust. Uh, January six, yeah. No, but actually nine yes. eleven as well, because obviously Guantanamo was set up for that. But this guy gets Canadian citizenship, so yes. I mean, the ADL is going to be very upset with Justin Trudeau. Oh yeah, I mean, like you say, walking around in a shaman outfit and standing behind the speaker's podium yeah. is clearly well above small things like massacre of civilians, violations of the Geneva Convention, mass killings, brutality against civilians. Population uh, dispersal, ethnic cleansing, and the Holocaust. But have you considered that Enrico Tario, who wasn't even in DC at the time, sent a text and so deserves 20 years? Well, speaking of the Proud Boys, they are literally like a prescribed terrorist organization in Canada, aren't they? So literally worse well, than yes, this guy. Yes. The Proud Boys are worse <laughs> than the SS. Yeah, fair, fair point. Fair point. Uh, let, let, let's have a look. So here's, here's some snaps of uh, this, this uh, chap when he was young. Ah. There he is in his SS uniform. He's the guy oh. standing in the middle at the back. So um, right. fetching, uh, so don't take this the wrong way, but they did have quite good uniforms. I will, I will say that. <laughs> See, I think they look quite baggy. They're not, they're not the best. Yeah, but you want something functional ones, while you're they? burning villages, don't you? I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the right, it's the right compromise between sort of freedom of movement and you know a nice cut. So I, I, I will give him that. Um, he, he, here's another photo of him. He, he's the um, he, he, he's the second um, uh, second on the left on that one. Yeah, oh, there he is. Is he standing in Michael Gove's nostrils? <laughs> <laughs> you would think, wouldn't you? And um, do we have any more photos of this man? Oh, there he is. Um, he, he's the one up by the machine gun without the helmet on. Right, and who's he? Who's he shelling? Uh, I, the, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they've just burnt out a Polish Vladimir Putin. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. not great. D d difficult to say without context, but there, there he is, and these are photos that he himself put up. Um, you know, just just by way of comparison to, to this chap, let's bear in mind that friend of the show Andrew Bridgen was thrown out of the British Conservative Party because he quoted a Jewish doctor. Yes, a Jewish Israeli doctor, and and what he said that what that Jewish Israeli doctor said was that a certain thing, which you know may or may not be leading to massive death counts now that we can't really talk about on a censorship platform, um, was the worst thing since the Holocaust. So basically, you know, the Holocaust is really bad, but after that time, yeah. this was the next worst thing. And um, for that, Bridgen was thrown out of the Conservative Party and will therefore probably, although hopefully not, probably lose his seat at the next election. Um, 
What he did not do is stand up in Parliament and start clapping for a literal member of the SS. <laughs> and yet there is a, a Commonwealth um, yes. parliamentary group applauding for the literal SS. But everyone as well. Like, n- not yes. a single member of the opposition yes. Conservative Party, who I presume were present at the time because they also want to kiss Zelensky's backside, thought, yes. hang on a minute. Yeah, they, they all heard he fought against the Russians in World War II and thought, yep, sounds legit. Let's get up. He's <laughs> literally guy. me. Our guy. <laughs> um, I mean, it just goes to show what a complete and utter farce these claims of anti-Semitism, mm. anti-Semitism that they throw around today, you know, uh, when you compare the Bridget case to, to, to this one, it's simply extraordinary. So what did the, the Centre for Holocaust Studies say to this? Um, they said... Uh, that this particular division that, that this guy uh, belonged to was responsible for mass murder of innocent civilians with a level of brutality and malice that is unimaginable. An apology is owed to every Holocaust survivor and veteran of the Second World War who fought the Nazis. An explanation must be provided as to how this individual entered the hallowed halls of the Canadian Parliament and received recognition from the Speaker of the House and a standing ovation. Two, actually, but yeah. So that, that's what the... Um, Hashtag Slava Ukraini. Yes. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what the Centre for the Holocaust Studies uh, had to say about it. Um, yes. So, so anyway, the uh, the Canadian Parliament is at this moment in full panic mode about this. Um, this is this is one. I, I think she's a Liberal MP. Um, I mean, she's she's. If, if you if you can see the well, she has picture. pronouns in her bio. Yes. Yes. So I would assume. So. Although to be fair, again, Canadian Conservative Party you can't tell these days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, honestly, yeah, it's very difficult. But, but, but what, what she says is, like all MPs, I had no further information than the Speaker provided. Yeah, but what the Speaker provided is he fought against the Russians. Just learn some basic bloody history. Hold, hold on a minute, yeah. I've read ahead. Right. Yes, and she then goes on to say, exiting the chamber, I walked by the individual and took a photo. Oh, the plot thickens. <laughs> As a descendant of the Jewish Holocaust survivors, I would ask all politi- uh, p- uh, parliamentarians to stop politicising the issue. Uh, uh, so troubling to many, myself included. Ah. So please, please stop talking about this immediately, everybody. Right, yeah. okay. So it's great to label a bunch of peaceful protests as literal Nazis. Yes. And possibly introduce a federal agent in their masked up, waving a Nazi flag that was then immediately kicked out, but say represented the entire yes. protest. That's fine. You can call all your enemies Nazis. Yes. But when you applaud an actual Nazi and show and then that you know nothing, a photo with them, yeah, yes. it's okay for you to politicise it by saying, actually, my grandparents were Jewish Holocaust survivors, so I'm I'm immune from this. I yes. like myself as exempt. But it's not okay for us to call you up on the fact you don't know what you're talking about. Yes, just making sure I'm on the same page. Got it. Yes, that, that's quite right. So, so my understanding is from people close to this is that there is now a concerted attempt to throw the um, the speaker under the bus mm. right. uh, for this one because it, because he did the introduction. Um, but who invited him? I, I, I think it, I think it, it came through the speaker's office. However, I would really? point out, and I, I look, I've, I've, I've spent some time in in, in our parliament. Um, I think I think you have as well. Yes. You do not get within spitting distance of the executive uh, without going through a vetting process. Yes. You know, um, I, I've, I've worked in parliament a couple of times, and every time um, there's like a three week wake beforehand, while they, while basically MI five does a, a full background check on you or whoever it is that's doing it. You know, you, you do you do not get invited into the chamber and given that sort of reception without being vetted to hell, unless you're very quickly personally invited by one of the MPs and just brushed past security. Yeah, but which yeah, means not, that someone, yeah. someone 
did this. Yes. And so their reputation, probably not the speakers, is on the chopping block. Yes. And presumably, if they're going as high as throwing the speaker under the bus, it's someone very high in the Liberal Party, possibly yes. Trudeau himself, that signed off on it. And it would just yes. look really bad if they yeah. admitted to it. What actually was the context of this guy being there in the first place? Was it literally just, look, this is an old guy who doesn't like Russians? Yeah, genuinely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's because Ukraine, yes. it's basically yeah. the Ukrainian dignitaries and Zelensky turned up to yeah. Gibbs. And so they said, here we go. We, we totally abide by Ukraine. Here's a man who also hates Russia. Don't ask where he was in the 1940s. <laughs> but I mean, you've already, you've already said this, I know, but it's just, we have to point out, fought the Russians in the Second World War. That should be a clue. Like, who did? Yes. Okay, what side do you think this guy was on? Because <laughs> the Russians were on our side, <laughs> right? As, you know, say what you want about that, but they were. Yeah, now, I, mean, I, I suppose he could have been he, he he could have been regular German army, and actually, I'm I'm not I'm not that bothered about the regular German army. I think I think those guys were actually, for the most part, pretty honourable. Well, they also didn't have an option. Let's be honest. Yeah, you were conscripted. Your country declares war on another country. Yes. If you're not a literal Dachau camp guard, I mean, you don't. Yes. Be Same with the First World War. Of the majority of shots fired in the First World War were fired over the heads of the enemies because most people didn't want to shoot the other person on the other side. Yes. So, like, you're not that and, culpable. And and look, um, you know, I, I read a whole bunch of, um, you know, years ago, I read a whole bunch of diaries of um, uh, Germans and, and British who were in the Second World War. Interestingly, I, I note that the British quite respected their German army counterparts. Mm. Uh, they didn't think much of their French allies. Um, I, I, I found that interesting, but they, they quite respected their German regular army counterparts. Um, but, but, but so he, I suppose it's possible he could have been a member of that, and that's what they were thinking. It's still a bit dodgy to stand up and, and clap for in that. the Canadian Parliament. That's just come on. Yeah, they're never going to applaud anyone, yeah. even like moderately associated. But, but the SS, I mean, that it wasn't it wasn't the regular army. You had to demonstrate a level of ideological commitment mm. to Hitler personally and Nazi ideology to get into the SS and it was regularly it, it was a whole part of their culture to regularly be pushing this you had serious rigorous training as well like yeah the, 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 just the interpersonal boxing regimens and the reading you had to do because you were meant to be the elite of the yeah. elite so well and, and my understanding is, is the regular army would do the regular fighting stuff and then the SS would come through and do the do the absolute criminality stuff the stuff mm. that regular soldiers wouldn't do um, and, we, and we know this because after the war, we got a whole bunch of um, German um, officers. We sort of took them to this nice place in the English countryside. And we basically just bugged everything and listened to their conversations. Um, and, and yes, there were some high-ranking German army officials who were sympathetic to the SS, but most of them were absolutely disgusted in the pool. With, and, and this was the private conversations amongst themselves. Um, so yeah, no, no, the SS were um, criminals, even by the standards of, of the, sort of the Germans of the time. Um, that we're in. So, you know, I'm just going to wrap this bit up by saying, you know, thank goodness there are no Nazis operating in Ukraine today. Um, and maybe we throw in a stone toss comic as well. There we go. Hope I don't trigger anyone with this one. I'm so glad we're all paying for this. <sighs> over to, things, over to uh, ooh. yeah, speaking of things we can't pay for. Yeah. So um, today I want to talk to you about the most important institution in England. I'm not talking about Parliament. I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about the monarchy. I'm talking. You're not going to say marriage, are you? No, heavens no. I'm talking about the pub. Ah, the heart of the English. It's a good-looking pub, actually. The I used, yeah, I, uh, 
I'll try not to dox myself, but it used to be my local. Oh, right. Beautiful okay. place. Um, anyway, uh, before we begin, I'll point you towards another in, uh, English institution that's actually been long dormant. You can read my reflections on the Witan, uh, which was probably about a month ago now. Dan, you were there. I was indeed. About a month. Making a comeback to the Witan after, yes. after many centuries of absence. Oh, yes. Yes. Very good. And uh, I'd recommend anybody who can get there next year, go, because it was, it was fantastic. Um, but anyway, I uh, to the story at hand, um, I sort of... Uh, Saw this story last week, two pubs a day disappearing in England and Wales. And I felt very, very sad because I am an Englishman. I love my pub. I love my pint. Um, and I think it's a really core part of our culture. Two a day. Two a day. How many of these, and I asked this because a local, this happened to a local mm. one near me. How many of these are getting firebombed by gypsies or Albanian gangsters for insurance claims? I couldn't give you a figure, um, right. but it does happen, I'm told. Yes. I, I know of one case. Yes. To, to be fair, um, they're probably doing that out of sheer desperation at this point. Mm. Well, one of them was because um, yes. a, guy had, a guy owed a, a gypsy gangster a lot of money, and then he went and slept with the guy's wife. And then he <laughs> As one said, does. well, fairs do. You know, there goes your business, which uh, you play with fire and get burned yes. a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, there are quite a few of these mm. sort of things. I mean, there was, there was one recently that was... I can't remember. Was it near Hull that got burned down by the owner because he wanted to make a claim on that? Are you talking about how do I scroll down on this? It's a down button. Was it the Crooked House? Is oh, that, that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we yeah. go. I could well, see into the future, apparently. Yeah. Well, this this um this incident sparked huge outrage, especially among the local community, because this was such an important part of their local culture. You know, this was like a, an iconic place. Um, but yeah, burned down presumably for insurance purposes. I mean, it's kind of the linchpin of a of a small community is the pub. I mean, yes. you know, every time I go on holiday to somewhere like Cornwall, you know, early in the summer, I take the family there, and we go and stay in these little little villages. Yep. they're always centered around a pub, and it's it's absolutely key. Yeah. to to the community. Yeah, and uh, so in the spirit, well, following this story, I decided to actually go around and talk to some publicans um, in my home oh, okay. co county of Kent. Um, have a chat with them and just find out what their concerns are and uh, you know what they uh, their view on what's going on in our country at the moment um, because you know you read these stories but you don't actually often hear from the people that it is affecting um, most deeply. Um, so before we go in, I, I do just want to say uh, some of the stats that the BBC give here. So figures show that 230 pubs vanished in the three months from the 30th of June, um, and uh, which is an increase over the quarter uh, or the, over the previous quarter, sorry, when the doors to 153 pubs were closed. Uh, it means that 383 pubs were demolished or converted for other uses between January and June. And last year, like for the whole of last year, it was 386. So already we've pretty much we're, we're going to surpass. The number that closed for the entirety of last year. Um, so that brings the total down. I mean, there's still 39,404 pubs in England and Wales, which, you know, is a lot. But if, we, if they're closing at this rate, that is going to decline very quickly. Have you got much on the reasons as to why they are shutting? Because I have some theories. I mean, from the conversations that I've had, um, there are a few sort of top line issues that people are talking about. These are things like VAT, um, minimum wage, uh, cost of running the business, electricity, uh, gas, and so on. Um, cost of employing staff um, and the enormous like <laughs> avalanche of red tape that people have to uh, put up. One of the other things I've seen, and this this survey came mainly out of America because they were serving 12th graders, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of trickle over here because of the effects of lockdown yes. and general cultural mm -hmm. changes. And this is something that when you, Carl, and AA were talking about how to get girls, basically just turn up to a pub and ask one out. And people yeah, were it, does, out. it does sort of hinge on a pub actually being open. Uh, yes. Well, not open, full. 
Because yes. the the increasing amount of 18 to 20 year olds that have mm-hmm. never tried alcohol and just don't go out and socialize yep. and spend yep. a lot of their time online is on the up. Mm-hmm. So Gen Z are just not flocking to these places. I, yep. I, I think the, the lockdowns will be a huge factor in why a lot of these pubs are closed. Because any typical business, especially if it's if it's seasonal or whatever it is, and pubs presumably do a lot better in, in, in summer than they do in, in winter or whatever it is. But with any business, the, basically the, 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 the income goes like that. And you've got a cash buffer between the costs that you must meet mm. and your sort of income coming in you've got a cash buffer in between what covid would have done is basically wiped out that cash buffer and basically people who went below the line closed down over covid yeah and those who just about managed to get through it you know they might be just on that line but any dips up and down either side due to seasonality or whatever it is or, or other costs that come up is going to push them under mm. so i think what why these pubs are closing it is a whole selection of issues with probably the big one as to why what accelerated that line would have been covid mm-hmm. Yeah, for the, lo- the lockdowns, not COVID. From what I've been able to gather, that buffer that you're talking about yeah. is extremely thin. Oh yeah, I'd days. imagine it extremely thin. Yeah. Um, so moving on then, uh, last year, um, Josh and Harry covered the death of the British pub, um, covering this same issue, um, mostly because of the consequences of lockdowns. You know, pubs across the country closing at a ridiculous rate, and it seems to only be getting worse, frankly. Um, so. Onto my conversations that I've had then with these publicans around my home county of Kent, um, I specifically wanted to talk to independent publicans. So these are not like not Weatherspoons managers, not Green Kings, yep. not uh, ones that are part of sort of pub or restaurant chains, but just literally independent local people. Um, so I'm going to keep them anonymous as well um, because uh, I wanted them to speak freely. Um, so you'll just have to take my word uh, on 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 this stuff. We source. It came to me in a dream. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I began by asking these people about themselves and sort of the, how long they've been publicans, why they got into the trade, um, and in pretty much in most cases, um, they'd been in the been in the industry for their whole lives. Um, in some, parents had been in the industry before them, so it's a tradition, right? You know, to sum it up. Um, and I mean, others only began in the last few years, but in each case, they all felt very passionately about their business. Um, their reason for getting into the business was never money. It was never to you know get rich. Um, it was always a vocational pursuit, um, something they wanted to do because it was a kind of calling. Um, they wanted to be, uh, they wanted to bring the community together. They wanted to be that kind of hub um, that uh, allows people to social. It must be a very consuming job because it's not like an office job where you finish at five and you go home and you don't yep. think about it. I mean, you 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 open presumably like 11 and mm-hmm. you're still there until 11 at night. Especially because well, loads of them live above it as well. So well, yeah, yes. And, and that was the case for, for some of the people that I spoke to. So for example, one person said to me that she's done 20 jobs while she's still in her pajamas most days. Um, you know, yeah. these are tw- they work generally 12-hour days, um, you know, late finishes, late start, yep. uh, early starts. Um, and there are no days off. That was another thing that I really picked up. If you own a pub, you, d- you don't get days off. Um, one uh, couple that I spoke to, they took a holiday to Spain uh, late last year, and that was the first holiday they'd taken for some time. Um, and while they were on holiday, their phone lines went down, um, which meant that they couldn't take any bookings for that weekend, um, and they had to get on the phone to BT and sort it out, and it was a whole thing. Um, and they predict that they uh, they estimate they lost about £10,000 worth of business. Fine. Literally just from that one tiny thing. And I think when I heard that, I thought that's just one, th- that's something I would never even imagine as being a problem I'd have to deal with, with, you know, when running my business. But it's little details like that, yeah. that add up to turn this into a job that is incredibly demanding. Um, but again, you know, these are people that are not in it for an easy life. They're not in it to make, to make money. Um, they're in it because they, they love it. They love their community um, and they want to provide that kind of service. Um, to the people that they live around. I think it's a really beautiful thing. And I think that it's it makes it all the more depressing. Very much part of the English character, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
these these are not things that can be, you know, this is something that I certainly talk about often. These are not things that can be quantified. You know, these are not things, you can't map this feeling onto a spreadsheet. Um, it's a qualitative experience, you know, going to a pub. Um, and another thing that I um, sort of really felt when I was talking to these people is that they really resent the sort of weatherspoonsification of the industry, by which I mean sitting at a table and ordering on an app instead of going up to the bar, having a conversation with the barman, you know, and all the rest of it. Instead, it just becomes one, one guy that I spoke to said it's like a factory canteen yes. for Weatherspoons. Because um, it is I, literally just I know, just I know exactly what he means. Because yeah. the other big trend that I see is um, chain pubs trying to pretend to be independent. Yes. Yeah, you uh, see that, that a, lot. a lot. Yeah, But I can always tell when I go up and order at the bar, mm. whether it's an, actually an independent or yes. pretending to be an independent from the way that you're treated when you get there. Absolutely. If it's that personal connection type thing, mm -hmm. it's just, it's a different feeling yeah. than you know you're an independent. And if it's if it's like you say a canteen, mm. Um, then you know, oh, hang on, this is a this is a chain disguised yeah. as an independent. I've, also, turns out the social texture is the, by nature of sitting at the table and ordering via the app. Mm. Each consumer is is itemized, yes. and so you don't have those chance encounters of walking past a table or going up to the to the bar and yep. having a having a chat with someone you'd never expected before. So the characters that inhabit those those pubs, oh, yes. they might still frequent it. But they keep themselves to themselves mm. or their little groups, so people are more atomized yep. over time. Yep. And yet, the Weatherspoons of this world have the advantage in this industry because they are able to charge the least for uh, drinks and food, uh, and they have the support, the kind of support structure, which means that if one pub is failing, they have the money to you know, sort of inject into it and save it. Whereas if your independent pub is failing, yep. you're dead basically. And they got, they got. I mean, they, I haven't looked at this for years, but I know their core structure advantage when they were starting out is that they could buy huge quantities of beer, which is quite close to expiration. Yes, because they'll get, they'll sell it off. Yeah, yeah, and and they they didn't sell you expired beer. It's mm. just they had the network that they could push it out very very quickly. Yeah. So therefore, they they had a, a, an automatic cost advantage mm. immediately. And also, if you're not hiring family members, you're hiring a revolving door of students and student towns. Yes, appreciate wages. Well, that's another that's another interesting uh, quality that these independent pubs have is that the staff are always local people. Um, and it might be kids, but it's kids who live two minutes down the road. It's not sort of fly-by-night employees um, who, can, who are just interchangeable, as you say. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah, onto some more of the conversation that I had. Um, something, something that one of them said that I really liked was someone has to do it. That was kind of the attitude. As if, as if the, the existence of the pub is non-negotiable, mm -hmm. right? Someone has to do it, so it might as well be me. Right, it's a kind of it's almost a duty thing, um, and again, I think that's really beautiful. I think that's a great it's a great attitude, um, and you will find as well that among um, the types of people that own pubs, these independent publicans, there is a tremendous uh, value placed on hard work, which is no surprise because their their every day is is just nonstop work of one sort or another, whether it's behind the bar pulling pints, talking to customers, or in the back office doing paperwork. You know, like literally mountains of paperwork by the sounds of it. Um, so I, I then asked them about sort of the kind of general trends in the industry, changes that they've seen over the last few years. Um, and the, the sort of this, the feeling I came away with was basically that people are less willing to come out and pay, you know, pay the rates that they have to charge um, for drinks and food um, because of the sort of um, economic situation that we find ourselves in. Um, they are seeing that people are just more, I don't know, if, when, when once people might come out Friday, Saturday, Sunday, now they'll only come out on one of those days. It's also a demographic problem because yeah. we have got, relative to the baby boomers who were a very pub-going culture, same with the Gen mm. Xers, we've got a smaller cohort of the domestic population who are most likely to drink. And then you've, you've 
split that domestic population down to the sort of slug and lettuce going normies, yeah. who again will frequent the chain like a spoons or something, mm. or people that are like biohackers and don't drink. I mean, I sort of fall into that these days, mm. or people that are just terminally online and never even leave the house. Yeah. And then the other thing that's driving population increase are all of the new Britons yeah. whose often religion prohibits them from drinking. So they're not going to end up in yeah. the local um, unless it's going to be turned into a mosque. We'll get to that. Oh, bugger. We'll okay. get to Probably that, Connor. Don't you worry about that. Um, so I, I also spoke to them about COVID and Brexit and that sort of thing. Now, generally, Brexit, they say, didn't have any effect at all on the industry, which is quite interesting given the sort of the level of fear-mongering at the time. Um, but you won't, it won't be a surprise to learn that some, you know, these people generally were in support of Brexit um, because they recognized that... And the reason given generally was the sovereignty argument um, because they recognized the power being ceded to essentially what amounts to a foreign, a foreign power um, is wrong. Um, and they do, they have that sense. Because these are not... This is the interesting thing. These are not political people. Um, the people that I spoke to, they weren't. They weren't particular. I mean, they they followed politics because they were they were adults and they were you know business owners and they were serious people. Um, but they they didn't think about politics in the way that, for example, us three would. Um, and yet they did have this instinctive feeling that a uh, sovereign, a uh, foreign power having sovereignty over your country was wrong. As custodians of the culture, you'd like to keep your culture in place yeah. rather than have the continental Germans liquidate it down to the European superstate. Indeed. It's Totally understandable. Yeah. COVID, on the other hand, was a huge problem for them, which is obviously no surprise. And that's by which I mean the government uh, response to COVID, the lockdowns and all the rest of it. Now, the stories did vary because some people said that the support was more than adequate and that they were actually really grateful to Boris Johnson's Conservative Party for the measures that they put in place. Others didn't feel that way. Um, others said that they, they were essentially left to the dogs. Also, I, the ones that realise... mix on their business model because there mm. was those two Christmases where they were told basically go out and mm -hmm. spend a huge amount of money on yep. stock and then ha-ha, you're going to have to bin it now yeah. after they'd spent all that money. Yeah. So I, I wonder if this is a wet-led or, or food-led difference. It's also the fact that there are those who realise that eat out to help out is something they're paying for now in inflation. And they, all the they all realise that. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, some, some, I would have assumed that some of them thought eat out to help out proportionate to the amount of income they might have been getting as a slight slump before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, all, all good and fancy. And since that's gone away, it's like, no, you are actually paying through that for the back end now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But um, again, COVID, uh, broadly, the sense was that it was a hugely damaging thing for their industry. And the aftermath, which we're living through now, um, well, it continues to have a terrible impact. If, on if their nothing level else, it reset your habits. Mm. Because you know, I, I used to go a lot more before COVID, yeah. and then because I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you just your habits just just change when you can mm. on the other side. Well, one thing that was actually really interesting that one guy said to me was, um, he feels like after COVID, people people changed in a way that uh, that's sort of less patient now and less sort of um, maybe charitable, I suppose, when they're patronizing a business. They're more demanding, maybe. And I thought that was quite an interesting take because I can, I can kind of see where he was coming from with that. Because um, I think that the kind of furlough culture that COVID created um, probably has led to people being a little bit more, feeling more entitled um, than they may have done before. If everything's order on demand, then you mm. expect in-person businesses to operate with the same level of impersonality and efficiency. And you add to that, again, the weatherspoonsification of the industry, where everything is just press button on phone, go, 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 go. You know, but to be no fair, surprise. even Weatherspoon are cutting pubs. Mm. Well, yeah. they are, yeah, and yeah. we'll get to that as well. Um, and next, so next I talked to them about the sort of um, the very complex regulatory and uh, tax landscape of their industry. Um, and on this, they were pretty much unanimous that VAT is killing their industry. Um, so they're paying, I think it's something like 20% on, uh, on food and drinks at the moment. Um, and that is amounting to, well, 
several people who I spoke to said they were paying tens of thousands, you know, 25,000 plus a year in VAT um, on what they're selling. Um, and they said that add, you, you add that to the cost of energy, the cost of employing staff, and then all the BS that they have to put up with, with the various little problems that just the, the fires they have to put out on a daily basis. And it's no surprise that these businesses are going going under at a rate of two a day. Well, also all these costs are cascading down the supply chain. And if they have to procure the goods in the first place, if mm -hmm. petrol and energy are going up, then yep. just getting the lorries to show up to get your beer kegs in is going to be more expensive than it yeah. was four years ago. Indeed. I, I um, think this is probably broader than just a publisher. This is just a doing business in Britain today mm. problem. So um, I've got a brokenomics, which I think is coming out tomorrow, where I spoke to a couple of um, smaller housing developers about the sort of uh, you because you would you would imagine what that process is of building a house mm. it's not what you think it is it is a huge amount of bullshit and consultants and extra taxes and all the rest of it that, that happens you know really early on in that process mm. it's, it's basically every industry that i ever look at there's a vast amount of red tape bullshit and taxes yeah. that gets loaded into the bit that you don't see because basically it's government stealth taxes yeah. and, and rent seeking and all the rest of it that goes on. Well, on the red tape, this was another really funny little anecdote one of the people that I spoke to told me was uh, he needed four different licenses to have a TV and play music in his pub. Yeah. And they were all they all required different paperwork. And something else he told me was that in order for the chef to be allowed to play music in the kitchen while he's cooking, that required a license. You know, it was just all these all these things that are essentially amount to covering people's backsides legally. Um, just you know, sort of just arbitrary red tape. And, and when this spirit emerged, you know, when, whenever well, I mean, I, I know that British pub culture goes back a very long time indeed. Mm. But I mean, just 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 take say something like the seventies. A, a pub was open your doors, have some beer. Yes. And and now the I just can't imagine the amount of bullshit they have to mm. go through. Yeah, there is a lot. Um, and. The, the other thing that one of the people that I spoke to said was um, the kind of paper, the sort of red tape, like the pat testing and food hygiene ratings and all the rest oh, of it, yeah. um, is it's it's all stuff that hasn't actually made a particular material difference to anything. Like before those things came in, pubs weren't just by burning down left, right, and centre. People weren't dropping dead from food poisoning. These things were brought in again. It's not like, it's the, not like churches in France, you know. It's not nothing like that. Indeed, yeah. yes. Um, but you know, these the, the, these weren't widespread problems. But these arbitrary um, regulations were brought in again, essentially to cover people's arses. Um, and they're just me. It just means that these people have more to do. Um, for no particular reason. Yeah, by enforcing a bureaucratic standard, you drag everyone down to the lowest common denominator that some idiot who isn't using common sense mm. yeah. um, would would have to. But then that means just it, people can get away with working up and to the line. Yes. And so rather than that social texture mm. being that which governs it, it's, again, the bureaucracy and people that can just be in the revolving door as long as they learn the rules mm -hmm. for as long as they get paid for it and then bugger Cause, off. Because the rulemakers think that's a minimum standard. We're going to drag everyone below the minimum standard up to it. But actually, like, like you say, what it does is it drags people above that standard down to the line mm -hmm. as well. And again, back to the sense of duty that I got from the people that I was speaking to. I don't think these are people that we that would be cutting corners you know, if given the option no. to. I think these are people who want to provide a good service to their community. They want for it to be you know, high quality. They don't want to just, because again, they're not in it for the money. They're in it to provide people with a good experience. And so I don't think they would, <clears throat> in the absence of these kinds of regulations, I don't think they would like just like, you know, um, allow it all to go to go to shit. You know, I think it would be, <laughs> I think it would be fine. Um, but again, they have to put up with this stuff. Um, so then I moved on to more broad questions about the condition of England. Um, and this was very interesting to hear from these people because these are people who are essentially leaders of their community. They are um, staple people. Um, and I think that their views probably reflect the, the, the views in their community. Um, 
One of them told me quite simply that there is no hope, which I thought was very realised Peter Hitchens owned a pub. Yeah, apparently so. <clears throat> um, no one, no one who I spoke to felt good about the direction of our country, and who can blame them? You know, especially in their industry, seeing what they're seeing, where they're seeing pubs dropping dead left, right, and centre. Um, I don't think it's any surprise that these people don't don't feel good about the direction of our country. Um, and the general, um, the pr- the specific problems that were highlighted were again very consistent. They were quite unanimous on this. So it was the poor quality of our leaders, <clears throat> the ridiculous taxes, um, the the decline of the economy, um, the number of people quote screwing the system, um, and of course immigration as well. Um, and another sense that I had now. A couple of them did say this, but this was a, this was a, an impression I had from everybody who I did speak to was that they felt they had no voice um, in mainstream politics. Um, they have no representation among the elites, and fundamentally, they don't say they they feel that the elites are not on their side. Um, they feel that the elites are actually against them and trying to keep them down and push them down, um, which I think is really depressing. Um, I mean, it shows you another. It's just another example of how our elite class are completely disconnected from the the sort of sort of the earth people who actually make up our country. Um, and who regard them basically as a, a regulatory problem to be solved, instead of as um, indispensable I, I opponents of our country. Just publicans who, mm. who would say these things. I think everybody who does something that is actually useful mm. will agree with all of that. Yes, I, I think the three industries you're going to get that most in are cab drivers because yep. they are the ones who are yep. having their livelihoods driven off the road. Publicans because <clears> top-down <throat> pressures like the WHO that want to actually eliminate alcohol consumption are doing behavioral nudge policies to drive their industry to extinction. And barbers, by that I mean those of those that aren't drug fronts and do actually cut people's hair and have people in the chair every day and hear very different stories from very different mm. industries. But about how I, I'm just worse. wondering, is, is there a whole second country out there which is running parallel with the world that we see? Mm. People who do bullshit consultancy and are part of the bureaucracy and do... I, I don't know, may, maybe the people who issue the certifications that the people in the productive part yeah. of the economy. Is, is there a whole second economy out there that look at the world today and think, yeah, we've got good leaders and sensible rules and taxes are too low and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's, it's called the civil service. They just get a cab through all yeah. the shit parts of London. But, but things is, it's not just the civil service at this point. It is a huge bunch of consultancies who you know issue the and it's not government. It, it's like that second. It's that non-governmental tier of bullshit. That is even too bullshit for government to do. Yeah, yeah, they exist. They absolutely exist, and yeah. everyone in there feels soulless doing it as well. That's something. That every sort of young person that goes into this, they feel that they're mulch in a machine, and they feel mm. constantly compromised. And by the time they get to an executive position, they've been so compromised. They don't believe what they, the convictions they have when yeah. going into it, and so they just go along with what the next guy says. Yeah, great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But I, kind of, I concluded my interviews by asking these people what, what the pub as an institution actually means to them, what it represents. And literally, again, unanimous. In every case, I'll, I'll give you a quote, actually. So, quote, it's the hub of the community. It's a place where if you want something done, work done on your car or building work, you go to the pub. There's always someone in there who's in the trade. Before mobile phones, you went to the pub. I think, again, I, th- I just think that's beautiful. I think that's, that's a social fabric that is disappearing in this country um, for the various reasons that we've outlined here. Um, and I think that losing that would be a tragedy because the pub is a, it's one of the oldest institutions in this country. You can actually trace it back to Roman Britain. It's not quite the same as what we have now, um, but it is a sort of consistent feature of the, of the Anglo experience um, is a place where the community does come together, generally over alcohol, you know, say what you want about that. Um, and just socializes, you know, relaxes, unwinds. That was another thing that, that 
some people who I spoke to said, they said that it's not, it's a place that's not really serious. It is a place where you can let loose a little bit. You can kind of, uh, I don't know, just relax after a hard day's work. Um, and I think that those places are more and more, well, that experience is more and more confined to our homes in the modern world, again, with the kind of atomization that we talk about. Yeah. Um, whereas actually, it's an important thing to you know, be among your countrymen um, when you do want to relax, because it does engender this um, social fabric that you can't, you can't create in, that in any other way. Yeah. I don't think you can impose that from the top down. A lack of pressure release valves also means that if this is driven back into the home, those feelings mm. don't go away. That mm -hmm. need for catharsis doesn't happen there. Yep. Instead, you're just increasing the amount of interactions within the household mm -hmm. that could break up that household through an argument or something. Yeah, yeah, so, that's a great point. So, the public also exists in the modern day for men to go and complain about their wives, because it's not that they don't love them, but they do need some time away. And so yeah. if you snatch the pub away from working men, well, then you're going to snatch men away mm. from their wives. I mean, where else, where else is there that you can go for this purpose in the modern world? Um, none, because pretty much all the men's sports clubs and social circles and that were mm -hmm. destroyed by equality legislation. Yep. And then, I mean, there's obviously, I, I mean, I thought maybe something comparable was, is the church, but obviously that's, as you'll no doubt attest to, that's been gutted uh, in the same sort of way. We can try and revive it, but mm. there are forces from the top working against us, like Pope Francis denying the existence of a mass migrant crisis. Indeed, yes. And also, what does it do to people's set of soft skills? I mean, that is what you mm. used to go to the pub where you'd learn how to socialize, how to talk to people, yep. Yep. how to navigate conflicts, how to deal with new people, how to get around political um, concerns. All of those things were skills that you could learn yeah. in something like a pub. Mm -hmm. If we're now deriving our entertainment from sitting at home watching Netflix, where basically we're having one side of the argument broadcast to us and there's mm. no feedback mechanism, you can see a whole generation of people whose social skills are atrophying off the back of this. Yeah, yes. via the internet, autism has become a social contagion. And for as little as £5 a month, you can see more. <laughs> no, seriously, though, with the coats are gone. With an E. Yeah, indeed. Um, so what do we take away from all this? Well, I think there's a few um, salient points, again, which my, my interviewers were unanimous on, which is, first of all, the pub is one of the most important institutions in English life. Second, the government seems to be doing all it can to cripple this industry um, through taxation and excessive regulation. Third, um, this constituency doesn't feel represented in mainstream politics. Um, and I think that those, I mean, it's a damning indictment, if one were even necessary, of the current elite that we have. Um, and another thing that I really noticed about this, I mean, we, I've already mentioned Weatherspoons and those sorts of organizations in this conversation. Um, but this to get a little bit theoretical about it, um, it brought to mind sort of James Burnham's distinction between managers and owners, which is that managers don't have that kind of, they're a kind of fly-by-night character. They don't have the investment in the business that an owner does. Um, an owner cares about the business because it is theirs. And if the business goes under, well, no one's going to be there to save them. Whereas a manager, if the business goes under, leave and go somewhere else to do the exact same job with the exact same set of skills. Um, and this was really, this distinction was brought into sharp relief um, when I was having these conversations. And it showed me that the kind of system that we have now, um, which is essentially what I would call managerial capitalism, read my article on that on lotusetas.com, um, it, it does create this culture where um, every, it's just purely about efficiency and, and growth. It's not about creating a good quality experience and creating a texture um, that can't be quantified or put into a spreadsheet. Yeah, if, it's, if it's not monetizable, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You have to be constantly maximizing and efficientizing mm. in order to stay afloat of this. As you describe it, the, the, the government, which is, it's, 
I mean, you, you, you said that the government is trying to destroy these people through taxes and mm. regulations. I don't know if it's necessarily the government are consciously trying to destroy people. Oh, no, I'm not necessarily I, saying I, that it I, is I an think, intentional no, I think thing. the government is more like a, a heroin user who is well on their way to hitting rock bottom. Yes. They're not deliberately trying to destroy themselves. It's, it, they've just got locked into a, a series of destructive behaviours mm. that they can't break out of it. And, yeah. And, and we, I mean, we, we desperately need something to break. And, yes. And hopefully that thing will be the government, not mm. the people. Yeah, well, we can only hope. But um, that kind of managerial model also has the advantage as well. Like I said, you know, you can inject funds from another pub into, you know, into a failing pub and save it. Whereas, you know, the independently owned entrepreneurial pub just goes under. And it's no surprise, therefore, that we're seeing as many go under as we are. Um, but I thought I'd finish off on another black pilling note, which is that uh, this story is also something that is happening a lot, which is that pubs are being bought and knocked down and turned into mosques and other um, oh, sorts of... Uh, right. To make way for the pastimes of the new Britons. Indeed. Um, so we have this one, which is from 2020. This one, 2019. This one, 2013. So this is a long-term problem. And as a matter of fact, one of the publicans who I spoke to told me that his mum and dad um, owned a pub for decades. Um, and then it, the, you know, the business went under. They sold the pub, immediately knocked down and turned into a mosque. Right, this is the kind of thing that Andrew Tate will be celebrating on Twitter, is it? Well, indeed. Islam's going to save Britain by no longer being Britain. So I'm told, yes. Um, but I think that there is incredible symbolism in this uh, phenomenon. Um, I find it to be a deeply depressing thing. Um, and again, I think uh, we'll finish up with these two stories of uh, two pubs that are um, close to our hearts here, or rather this one's close to my heart because Canterbury is very near where I live. Yeah, I lived um, there for three odd, four years. Yeah. yeah. So this is a, a pub that's being closed uh, potentially in order to uh, make way for a kebab takeaway shop, as if Canterbury needs any more of those. Yes. You'll attest to that, Connor. Um, One of and them burnt down on the on the street corner actually near Westgate Inn uh, really? a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. and uh, nobody nobody lost anything of value. Indeed. And this final story that the Weatherspoons just down the road from where we are sitting right now, the Sir Daniel's Arms in Swindon is up for sale. So I would say that if you're at a loose end tonight. Go down to your local, have a beer, have a chat with the publican, and uh, just enjoy the experience of the English pub, because it might not be something that we have for very much longer. Bloody old Charlie, we're all going to need a drink after that. <laughs> right, on to the final one. Hopefully this might be a bit more lighthearted because we might be able to mock the state of the government. So we're about a week out from the Conservative Party conference, which I will be attending again this year with our intrepid cameraman, Rory, and I'm sorry to report that the Conservatives continue to be unmitigated containment for any kind of revitalization of the culture and any kind of motivated action from the traditionalist right. If you'd like to learn more about what has been done to us, how culturally deracinated we have become, you can subscribe to our website for as little as £5 a month to get the audio track for Rory's latest article, The Preeminent Standard. This is a very metaphysically rich article about the local outlet centre in Swindon that was used to be the big factory for GWR. And we walked around it today, actually. I'd never been there before, but I did proofread this, and it's, it's fantastic. And it is like the somewhere, the heart of the town, the industrial manufacturing hub of Swindon, has been hollowed out by the anywheres of global brands. You walk around mm -hmm. that place and you think, this must have been remarkable in its day. Yeah. Yep. And now there are cranes and lights in the ceiling that would have been about 100 years ago, been used to create great steam engines yeah. that are now hanging like ornaments above a Ralph Lauren and a KF. Hanging like corpses, I think you would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. It's like the flesh pits in Mortal Kombat. Anyway, so on to the first one. With enemies, uh, with politicians like these, who needs enemies? Um, Rory Stewart. <laughs> Just look at that thumbnail. For the audience, 
who are listening. <laughs> this is an interview you did in Novara Media. And that isn't edited, by the way. So sometimes Jack, our editor, pulls the faces apart in thumbnails to yeah. make them look frowny and funny. That's just Rory Stewart's face. He looks like a bulldog chewing a wasp. And the caption is, we're not all evil. If you are promising that to literally a communist act Sarkar, you're the biggest cuckold in the country, even but, more so than Steve so Baker. Th this is him speaking on behalf of conservatism to a communist yes. and defending himself to the communist by saying we're not all evil. Not just that. He Jesus. says, direct quote to Ash Sarkar, I think you should be a politician and I think you're too worried about your skeletons in your closet. He's saying, literally a communist Ash Sarkar should be an MP. She should join the Conservative Party. She'd fit right bloody in at this yeah. point. Uh, he also, during this, he says that the backbenchers who end up rebelling, quote, essentially become commentators, which is true. And that's because the Conservative Party, with the front bench, act as containment. But the, the very rare moment yep. where Boris Johnson, mainly because of Dominic Cummings, decided to kick out people like Rory Stewart for wanting a second Brexit referendum or for dragging us kicking and screaming back into the EU, that is abnormal because you were rebelling on behalf of the regime, Rory, not for people like Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger and the like that are saying, well, actually, the Conservative Party is currently destroying the country. Maybe we should, I don't know, have family tax credits so that we don't need to bus in loads of Africans to replace our failing demographics. And they go, and that's why you're going to lose your seat next time. Um, so, so to be fair, the, the the betrayal of the Conservative Party, actually, when you go back and look at it, they, they've consistently betrayed their voters going back to the days of Peel. But the, the Conservative Party in its modern form, I feel, I feel it really lost its way when Cameron came in. Yes. Because mm -hmm. we had at that chance a choice between David Davis, who, who I think is a good man, I've met yep. him a couple of times, you know, I think he's a genuinely good bloke, has, has the right approach. Uh, and we went for David Cameron. Now, what, what that basically meant is, is Cameron, and I was, I was quite associated with the party at the time, and there were the people who considered themselves the modernizers. And the whole modernizing agenda was basically to turn the Conservative Party into a blue version of a, of a Blairite party. And yep. they succeeded. It became a Blairite party. And, and Cameron's overwhelming mission was to change the selection process so that only Blair, blue Blairites were ever selected from that point forward. He also wanted to make it, and he wrote about this, and I think it was in a Times article last year, to make it deliberately diverse. So he had all women and all BAME yep. shortlists well before even the Labour Party did in some constituencies. And that ended up with people like Liz Truss and Priti Patel, you know, all the people yes. that are totally ineffectual. Well, the, the other thing though, because the, because the only, so, so basically they changed selection at that point forward so that if you displayed any hint of being conservative and believing yes. in things like um, national borders, family, um, low taxes, free markets, you were immediately booted. They, yes. they were looking for Blairites. The only people they ever made an exception for were people who were on their high priority list, which was basically things like black women, for example. And that's why um, the, the most based candidate out of the last leadership round was Kemi Badenoch. Mm. Um, because, yeah, because, yeah. because an exception was made for her. It's like, okay, well, you, you like things like low taxes and small government. We're not really about that, but because you're a black woman, we're going to make an exception and allow you in the Conservative Party. Yeah. And also people that do the reactionary vanguard tactic of holding their tongue long enough until they get elected and then founding something like the New Conservatives, who even then are having to play ball with the front benches because some of the people are slightly less radical in that coalition. And they say, well, we agree with everything the government says, but also we want to reduce immigration by the hundreds of thousands. And the government comes out that same day and says, actually, we like our immigration policy where they're flooding you with a million foreigners a year. And so you just don't really get anywhere. The, the only Conservative the MPs these days remotely worth listening to are the ones who got their seats in the 90s or before. Mm. There are some 2019 intake MPs that are half decent, but it's because one, they came in with a genuine socially conservative bent, and two, they're petrified of being kicked out.
like Danny Kruger and Cates. But Dan, the, proce- the process you were just talking about where the Conservative Party was basically subverted by Blairites and then filled with them. I mean, that's an incredible like, value for analysis. That was an incredibly effective exercise in politics, yeah. right? That was yeah. a very, that was good work. You know, yeah. if you're looking at it purely out oh, yeah, on, well, on the basis of whether well, it was I mean, effective. That, that's why the BBC uh, in 2010 mm. endorsed the Conservative Party. Yes. Because they recognised that if, if you got to the point where even the opposition's Blairite, mm. If you if you exchange um, well Blair was gone at that point it was Brown if you if you exchange Labour for for the Conservatives who are a Blairite party that absolutely cements the Blairite legacy yes it absolutely gold plates the, everything he did you're and locked it, it, into the progressive trajectory inexorably yes. and anyone who gets in the way is just a speed bump on the mm. road to utopia and it shows it shows you the value of things you know this sort of elitist elite theory way of thinking because it does show you that. You know, at the top, if if the two choices are literally populated by the same types of people, people who would regard each other as political friends, then the choice is completely meaningless. Yeah, well, we'll get on to how that was the case. Very short window of time shortly. Just yeah. a couple more things from Rory Stewart here. Not that he says anything worth listening to. He, he literally says at one point in the podcast, people ask me, why are you not a Labour MP? And then he cites emptier prisons, gay marriage and net zero as the reasons why he agrees with the Labour Party. I mean, party. presumably Labour is too right wing for him. Probably, yes. Um, he, he also says he attends the Bilderberg group and he says, quote, I was a young global leader at Davos. Oh, there we go then. Right. So I mean, the man of... has a podcast with uh, Alistair Campbell. Oh, yes. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, he also says his friend Mike Crawley, he was one of the heads of the Liberal Party in Canada, um, he says that he thinks Crawley, he and I, Rory, are basically the same person. So the man who wasn't Justin Trudeau but wanted to be is identical to the man who calls himself the true conservative. And he actually wrote uh, an article about this recently in, in The Atlantic called What to Do When Your Political Party Loses Its Mind. Um, I was a conservative until Boris Johnson expelled me. It was a painful experience, but here's what I've learned. And I think we'll learn that Rory Stewart isn't actually a conservative like quite a few people in the conservative party. Reckoning with Johnson's legacy has made me very conscious of Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. I wonder what le- general lessons can be drawn about alienation from political parties as it shifts from the centre-right to the extreme. Again, marginalising anyone who dissents against your Blairite paradigm. I can hardly claim to have found a formula. I'm beginning to believe that conservative populism can be defeated and that there is a route back to the centre ground of democratic politics. Now, he actually cited Theresa May as one of his political heroes because she was willing to make compromises with the Labour Party, not doing a hard Brexit, not campaigning for rejoin, but just doing a soft Brexit where you lose everything in divorce proceedings. But literally, if you told me Tony Blair wrote that, I would believe you because that's just pure Blairite rhetoric, a return to the centre, democratic values. It's not nearly as rhetorically smart as Tony Blair. Well, no. You Don't give him too much give him credit. That, but... It's just the tribute act. Yeah. I was wondering. Right, that, that's the whole agenda. It's get back to the centre. What what these people want, what all of them want, all, what all of the globalists want, is basically the rerun of what was it, the 2010 election, where you got three people on stage. It was Nick Clegg, um, <laughs> David Cameron, yep. and, and was it Brown? And basically, I three agree with Nick. Have the same policies. Mm-hmm. You know that that is what they want. They want and 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 that reference to Donald Trump. The, the true politics these days, the only distinction that matters is, is not blue team or red team. It's regime or anti-regime. Yeah. Are you That's, inside the club or outside of it? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And here's the revelatory part. Quote, I was once a Labour Party member, but my years working in Iraq and Afghanistan alienated me from Tony Blair's technocratic triumphalism. What different policies do you suggest? Rory, you, you, you host the podcast with Tony Blair's spin doctor. You're just a liar. Like, come on. I was drawn to David Cameron because I felt it better reflected my instincts about tradition, country, the wisdom of local communities, restraint abroad, and prudence at home. What, to destroy all of those things? (laughs) Apparently so, yes. I became a member of parliament in 2010 when Cameron led a coalition government. We campaigned and voted together, not for localism, but also for gay marriage, net zero emissions growth, and far more spending on international development. So we campaigned not just on localism, but globalism as well. 
Literally Wonderful. globo homo. Thanks very much. When later as a government minister with responsibility first for prisons and then for the environment, I moved to reduce the number of people incarcerated and double the UK's expenditure on ca- tackling climate change. So we voted to spend all your money on the Sky Demon and let criminals out. Yep. You're just a scumbag. Like, no, well, the political party didn't go mad by electing Boris. Actually, Boris just betrayed pretty much everyone that had voted for him from the general public. Um, but the act of madness was not kicking you out. It was keeping you in for as long as they did and then still retaining your general sentiment even after you were long gone. So speaking of someone that didn't share his sentiment, at least a little bit, um, Liz Truss, there's a book out soon by John Murray called The Right to Rule and it actually tables some of the events from the last days of the Truss administration. That and, might actually be quite interesting, that. Well, it is quite interesting because in here it details how Quasi Quarteng found out he was getting sacked. And he was on the. He was on a flight, wasn't he, or something? He was on the drive back from a Washington meeting with right. loads of people. Um, he was actually at the IMF summit. There we right. go. And Truss had asked him not to go. Right. And when he landed in London, didn't expect to be fired. Minutes away from number ten, he saw a tweet from the Times political editor Stephen Swinford revealing that he was being sacked. <laughs> so he found out over Twitter. Yeah, and that that was a blunder for Truss. That really. yes, well. I mean, she should... told her that, apparently. Right, okay. That's quite interesting. For 20 minutes, sitting around in the coffin-shaped cabinet table, Quartang tried to persuade Trust that killing off his cabinet career would also sound the death knell for her. They're going to come for you, warned Quartang. Yes. They're coming for me already, said Trust. They're going to ask you if you sacked him for doing what you campaigned on. Why are you still there, he warned. Reporters would do just that in the hours after the press conference, without drawing a clear answer. Quartang asked who his replacement would be. The answer, Jeremy Hunt. Hunt? Quartang say, he's going to reverse everything. Now, Hunt, how he got the job is fascinating. Um, they call him a Tory centrist in this article. I, no. I think he's an actual communist because he married one, but there you go. He was on holiday in Brussels. He got a text one does, yeah. from Liz Truss on her new phone number asking him to call him. He ignored it because he assumed it was a prank. <laughs> he, even he didn't believe that the coup was being pulled off, right? So, after Quartang... I, I, I always say sacked, this about Truss. Right instincts, thick as a plank. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's properly dim as a two-watt bulb. But she, again, when you say right instincts, she was over the mark of a sort of fissure of weakness for the global project. This is something that AA has spoken about before. You have a sort of distinction between the neocons and the globalists and the Conservative Party, yeah. and Truss is in the neocon camp. She's very pro-Ukraine, but she's also for national sovereignty against intersectionality and against sort of open borders yep. stuff, sort of. She wanted to do free trade with India, which I think is mad, but but there you go. And so that's why they got rid of Boris and Truss, because they're progressives, but they're just a bit slower than the actual rate of change that the globalists would, would quite like. Yep. Um, so Truss then gave her resignation about six days later. James Bowler, who was the incoming permanent treasury secretary, who was replacing someone, um, he was summoned to tell Truss how challenging the situation was. Quote, one source in the room summed up his message. He made crystal clear that there are a lot of very intelligent, very wealthy people who don't do politics, look at numbers only, who are absolutely prepared to smash Britain to pieces on the markets. They were betting against us and they were going to win. We'd lost the confidence of the markets and we were in a very, very weak position and the whole thing needs to be junked. One source in th- and so that's that's the assessment of the guy who was saying, well, the markets are acting in consonance against us and they're happy to destroy our country. So was it the list trust really broke the markets as we've as we've discussed before? Rates are higher now than they were then. Yeah, that's mm. that's curious. It's almost like Rishi Sunak moved in and decided to spend more money and make more spending commitments, and the markets didn't go wobbly because they they agreed with everything he wanted to do. And, and so Leon Halligan, who's a financial analyst for for GB News, he actually points this out and he puts it far more succinctly to Nigel Farage than I ever could. So um, as an economist, Dan, I just wondered what you what you made of his assessment. There we go. Yeah, she said the reason my policies failed is because. 
even though I was elected off the back of them by the Tory faithful, there was massive pushback from the blob, from overpowerful administrators, from lefty bureaucrats, as she put it. I mean, she looked at the economic secretary of the BBC in the eye and said, <laughs> you are part of the problem, Faisal, because you are asking me questions yeah. like that. Endless questions. Will you apologise? Will you apologise? Yeah. But when it comes to the Bank of England, for example, she has a point, Liam Halligan. She does. And I asked her about this and she was a little bit reticent maybe to go there because this is these are really deep waters. Did the Bank of England effectively oust her by doing things that undermined the gilts market in the run to a mini budget and then doing things which strengthen the gilts market and therefore mortgage rates when, you know, her nicey-nicey adults in the room successors, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, came in. And I think that the Bank of England did do that. And that's what the record shows. And the IMF. The Bank of England did something called quantitative yep. tightening yep. in the days before the mini-budget, which basically means they throw billions of pounds worth of gilts or government IOUs at the market, which, of course, makes it harder if a politician is saying we are going to borrow a certain amount of mm -hmm. money. And then when trust was out the door, they then reversed that and did something which supported the market. So it made it made it look as if I mean, look, traders were euphoric when Sunak and Hunt came in. And had, yet still, rates are now higher. Mortgage rates are now much higher yeah. than at the height of her mini no, budget. I, look. Yeah, he, he, he's absolutely right. And there was no question that what you just described there, where they basically um, pushed pushed yields up by by oversupplying the, 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 the bond market at the time and then reversing on the others. There's no question that that happened. The only question is whether it was deliberate or not. But you've got to think, I mean, the, the Bank of England, did they not understand the mechanism? You know, Yeah, well, like, it, just, it just so happens that their guy who also wanted central bank digital currencies was positioned in prime position to be the next yeah. prime minister by default. Yes, and I, I, can't, I can't unequivocally prove that the Bank of England were conspiring against her. All I can say is it looks a lot like they were. Yeah, it stinks to high heaven. Yes. Yeah. There's also trust being out of ideological lockstep with the rest of the party. And that is that, and again, this isn't a Liz Truss fan club or anything here. Very dim, but preferable. She turned around very recently and said that schools should be banned from allowing children to socially transition. Um, as we're on YouTube, I will not make a comment on Liz Truss's oh, policy. Oh, yes, we, we have to be pro the alphabet people, don't yes, we? Yes, yes, very, very, very pro. Um, Pride month is over, yes. but it should be Pride season. Get yourself, get your bits cut off. All that kind of stuff, yeah. Um, she turned around and said, and this is at the moment, the reason she said this is because there's a sex ed inquiry about the appropriateness of things that are going on in schools, which we've been thankful to contribute to here over at lotuseaters.com, that says, oh, may maybe children in primary school shouldn't learn about bumming. Maybe that might be a bit inappropriate. Controversial. And, yeah. And Stonewall turned around and went, and you're a racist. And, and <laughs> of course, the Conservative Party, being really dedicated to child safety, uh, the Education Secretary, being a very competent person, Gillian Keegan, uh, she went and blocked the results coming out. Why I hate on these earth? people. Why would you do that? Is it because you're getting really bad advice from Whitehall that want to slow this down? Or is it because you know how long, hashtag 13 years, You've been in government, and this looks really, really bad that this has been going on state-sponsored in every school under your watch, and so you don't want it to get out to the public. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. We were teaching your kids to make sex organs out of bananas and hand lotion, something that actually happened in Swindon, by the way. Yeah, so about now, 50 Conservative MPs had urged Rishi Sunak to launch this inquiry. He signed off on it because obviously he's petrified about getting kicked out of the next election. That's why he's slowed down net zero just a tad. He's going to be screwing our wallets over just a little bit slower. And now they turn around and going, what the hell? 
but this inquiry has been going on. We've fed loads into it. It's been in the press. Kate has been writing endless articles for the Critic and the Telegraph about it. She actually wrote a recent one here of where we're saying this is this is an obvious political win for the Conservatives. Every parent doesn't want sex stuff put in front of their child or their child coming home with different name or different pronouns that they're saying so. So why aren't you doing this? And it just seems to me that either the Conservatives are too dim or too ideologically motivated, again, hashtag not all, um, to realise that this is containment or is actively sabotaging their electability and the health of the country. I really do wonder with things like this, though. Like, are they, do they really believe this stuff or are they just seeing that this, I mean, this is a clearly elite-driven project, all of this stuff. And are they just in that bubble where they don't even realise the extent to which normal people hate this stuff? Well... I think you are perhaps underestimating just how high level you can be a conservative politician and thick as pig shit. Because Theresa May, in an interview with The Telegraph, says she's a proud, woke woman. Oh, good. Yes, I'm really glad. Is it a literal quote? Yes. She's woke and proud. There we go. She called for a sensitive approach to issues surrounding gender. So she was asked whether she was a woke woman and was asked in the past whether she was a feminist. And she said, well, I wore a t-shirt which said, this is what a feminist looks like. Um, just do a physiognomy check. Yep, seems about right. When Miss Davidson asked the ex-Prime Minister about a line from her book titled The Abuse of Power, in which she discusses the term woke, she said, when you were writing about wokeness, you said the Oxford English Dictionary of Definition Woke is well-informed, up-to-date, and chiefly alert to racial discrimination and injustice. The Oxford Dictionary Definition of Woke, about being aware of systemic injustices secretly lurking under every rock. Apparently, Theresa May thinks that's correct. But, but what, the wokeness is undermining everything and screwing up the next generation. Just, just remind me, does Theresa May have children? No. Uh, but she does have a husband who secured loads of the security contracts for the G7 meetings, and she just so happens to be one of the richest MPs in Parliament. Weird. Right. Okay. Very odd. She's so, like our so very own Nancy Pelosi. Woke might work for you in those circumstances. Yes, yeah. She might have a lot the cost, of money. The costs of supporting wokeness are a hell of a lot lower if you don't have children. Yes, luxury mm. belief, after all. And, and so when she asked Theresa, are you possibly a woke woman? It's a direct quote. Theresa May said, in the terms of that definition of someone who recognises that discrimination takes place, sadly that term has come to be used as part of this absolutism and politicisation of politics. But when pressed, she said she was woke and proud. And she said, yeah, I am. Boom and midwittery at his finest. And unfortunately, that boomer midwittery is what has been running our country, whether or not Theresa May has been in office or is crying at a podium, resigning or not. I mean, the frustrating thing as well is when this was put out on Twitter, mm. you just look under it and it's all the Windrush black nationalists, of course, because it was our second founding. And they're there going, oh, you deported all my family members. You literally put us in camps because we didn't have a passport for the 1950s and all that. It's like, I, I, I wish that the Conservatives were as like a fraction right wing mm. as the Guardian Easter leftists accuse them of being. She's just come out and she said she's one of your girls and you're turning around and saying she's basically Franco point two. And it's like, yep. no, this is, but this is why we are in the same trajectory of travel no matter what color, blue or red stripes are on the car. It's, it's because... regime or regime. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and, and so, yeah, I... We'll be doing dispatches from the Conservative Party conference floor where the Tony Blair Institute has panels on every single day. And also the LGBT conservatives as well. Oh, I'll be, having a, I'll be having a chat with Luke, I'm sure. Enjoy that. I'll be saying hello. We won't be going to their disco night, I'm mm. sure, on the bloody Wednesday. Because last time they had a drag queen at it. You'd know. Well, we got drag. Was Rory, drag- said, Rory said we actually had to go to the... Was, yeah. was the drag queen at least an adult, not a five-year-old? I... Don't know. I didn't ask. It's didn't ask how it identifies, unfortunately. But the fact that we're even having this conversation just proves yes. that mm. the party is 
heading for defeat and it's hard pressed to say deservedly so my only frustration is and i was speaking to kate's staffer about this is that there's going to be some based mps who are on the margins who are in precarious red wall seats who are currently pushing all the right things and they only have like a seven thousand vote share and they might be ousted mm. so it's actually difficult whether or not the opposition when they have to reflect upon themselves will be right wing either so yeah we're going to get some reflections from a ravage conference so look out for that video on the website soon but um Conservatives to lend the rest, I suppose. Not fun. Anyway, on to the video comments. Welcome back to How to Be a Trad Wife. Beef. Jesus Christ. Beef stock. Worcester sauce. Tomato puree. Don't know oh, you me. ruined it. Cook the meat for two hours. Add the veg. Cook for another hour. Vegetables. As many as you can get your hands on. Ugh. Garlic. Flour. Yep. Yeast. Nugs. Salt. Butter. Make some dough. Divide them into little balls. Remember to put on Sultans of Chatelet on Rumble. Very important step. Add the dough balls on top and cook for another 20 minutes. And there you have the Great British Stew. Right, get rid of the weird bread bit and the stew is fantastic. I love a stew. No, no, I like that. In, I, in I've, I've been watching his cooking. His cooking stuff is quite good, actually. I do like that. We've got the same bowls as well. Yeah, I, I also, because I, I, I clicked on his, his YouTube thing and I, I found myself re-watching his um, AOC video, which I like. And... AOC video? What's that? Yeah. Oh just, oh, just just check out the channel. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Guinness okay. is a good ingredient for that sort of food, by the way, if you've yes. tried that before. Extremely. And, he, and he, get, he, get, he gets the key elements, the fat, the salt, the heat, the time. Yeah. You, yeah. Don't, you don't Very need good. anything more than basically pulled meat, stock, loads of salt, a couple of herbs, and that's it. Just a big bowl of melted slop. It's not <laughs> slop. In a good way, it's Brit slop. Slop. It's delicious. Right. Anyway. Next. Good afternoon, Lotus Eaters. Thanks to your very generous offer of code Sargon, uh, I can finally afford gold membership for one month. I've been following Sargon since he posted a video analyzing a post by Total Biscuits in the subreddit Kataka in Action about Gamergate, which means that I am yet again another story of a basement dwelling neckbeard who has been politically radicalized by that movement. I mean, it does look a little Good. bit like Bald Carl, actually. Welcome aboard, sir. There we go. Craig's got an advert. Hey, Connor, I was watching your bit on AWFLs just then, and I agree with a lot of the points you made. We can't really blackpill everyone. Uh, I produce two videos on YouTube and Rumble. Here they are. You can get them. You can find the link on my website. I'd like to know what you think about the points I made and whether or not you feel that I made them effectively. Cheers, man. Okay, so I will say... Hang on, hang on. What's, what's this channel? I don't know. Oh, I have to look it up. Then. Yep, no idea. I, I would imagine it's to do with C.S. Cooper. I will say that the inverse effect is for me of like Zelda putting me off because one, I've never... I played one of the games and I just found it irritating, but also like I, anything... Anything that's going to have like an anime or gaming framing will not be palatable to the normies. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll be opposite, actually. It'll be repellent. Yeah, yeah. I, so I played the original. I'll have a look. The two D top down one, which was I played one on the DS years ago. What's the DS? The, the, the flip up <laughs> Nintendo DS. Do you remember the Game Boy? Yes. The next one after that, the one with the little pen. No, I stopped at the Game Boy. What? Oh, good. Right. Do you have a DS? Yes. Yeah. Of course I have. Wait, light or I'm a Zuma. I, I had. I had the original. I had a bunch. Okay. See, yeah. good man. Okay, he's cultured. Yeah. You need to go and learn Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. Get it? 
No, Pokemon Pokemon is, is lame. I'm not going to lie. Did Zelda is good. Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. Like, that, was, that was the top-down dungeon crawler one rather than... Yeah, like, I know. That was, that was fantastic. The storyline that was great. And Drawn to Life. And Orcs and Elves. Nintendogs. They're probably yeah. starved by now. Right. I will always just be satisfied by Mario, to be honest. Which Mario one? Kart. 64 oh, was probably loved. Best. Mario Kart, best game ever made. Oh, yeah. Lotus Eats Mario Kart tournament for one of the lads out. That's actually <laughs> that a great a idea. idea. <laughs> that is fantastic. Right, everyone, production are watching this and listening now. Yes. Pete, how yes. much is like whatever system we need to get for it? Oh, I'll, just, I'll just bring in one of mine. You get like one of the old Wii's or something. Well, I have... You just get an emulator. If if it if okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've done that. It's really easy. for lads hour. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got I've got the, uh, the the remade SNES thing, and that's got Mario Kart on it. Okay, mm. but are we gonna we, we might have to get like a higher resolution game one just so it shows up on the. I don't know how. No, the no, tech just works just put it in the bottom screen, and so that that would be fine. Okay, right. So, so we're doing, doing Mario Kart comments. at some point. Yeah, yeah. We're, um, question for Dan. This is from Martine Williams. In a previous podcast, you mentioned that governments try to pass on their debt to people to solve inflation. My government in Belgium is offering state government bonds, Dutch stats stat. Stats bomb. Yep. To the people. These have a slightly higher interest than a savings account than for last year. Is there an attempt to pass on the debt to us? Ah, right. Okay. So the, the issue that you've got here is is you've got to delineate the different types of bonds. So um what I was saying is that the, the governments are likely to want to use financial repression, which is forcing um asset holders to to rotate into government long-dated government duration um bonds and then basically erode the value of those through inflation. So the bonds that you're looking at that the um, the Dutch government is offering to you, or in fact any government, um you can look at short duration um bonds because 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 they can be quite sensible because yes your your the value of the money is going to be eroded but probably not over the duration of the six months to a year that you hold these short-term bonds for so the calculation you need to do is if i can get say five percent or six percent on a short duration bond is that better than um, other short-term uses of my money such as um, a bank account which you're comparing it to here and yet that's fine i i don't worry about that so um, i mean i don't own any bonds myself but if i were to own bonds and there is a good argument for short duration um, high yield ones just stay away from the long duration bond stuff and actually incidentally that is also um, completely screwing up my old industry of venture capital because um, venture capital used to basically be okay let's get a, 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 a take a long duration asset and then let's earn you know the equivalent of something like 12% a year over or, or 20% or 25% or whatever it is that you, you're trying to earn over that time period whereas the base level you've now got to clear is like 6 or 7% it basically knocks out your risk premium on this stuff so, yeah, answer to the question, um, if you want, short-term only. Right, there we go. Uh, Sophie Liv, got to love how none of these people understand that world war means it took place all across the world and there are far more than just two sides and nobody was really the good guy, no one. Just because you fought Nazis doesn't mean you're an angelic hero. Just like you, because you fought the Soviets doesn't mean you're a good guy. You could be a Nazi or a Japanese imperialist. Yep. We never talk okay, about so, so, so Sophie is, um, as usual, absolutely right on this one. It, it is a hell of a lot more complicated. Um, but we live in a culture where it is where the view of this is extremely low resolution. It is Nazis bad, we are good. That I mean, I I don't actually believe that low resolution version of the world, um, but but they do. And um, let, let, let's get a bit all Sol Alinsky for a moment. What I was really doing that segment was um, holding them to their own standards. Um, so you know, by their own standards, what they did was the worst thing that they could have done. So you are right, Sophie, but. Um, I just wanted to make fun of Justin Trudeau because, you know. That is the funny thing about that, though. Yeah. I mean, as you touched on this, but um, AA talks, obviously AA talks about the boom of truth regime and about how Nazis and Hitler himself are the center of gravity for that moral paradigm. Yes. And yet, you know, you see these people who are the absolute, like, 
the prime example of people who are completely have the the the, the brain parasite of the boomer truth regime yes. deeply embedded in them. Yes, clapping a Nazi. Yeah, it's and, just and, insane. And, well, it, I, I wonder if it's because they can see the extinction. I, I don't think this was conscious on their part. I think this is just a blunder. But generally speaking, they can see the extinction of the the liberal world order on the horizon because mm. they're deliberately demolishing it. Slash the people that are trying to uphold it aren't nearly as competent as the people that put it in place, mm-hmm. and so they want to substitute. Nazism, the spectre of that, out with BRICS and the Russians and the Chinese, yeah. because you actually have to demonize them, uh, rightly so in, in some cases, because they're going to be far more prosperous. And so you can't have the West look to them and go, well, hang on a minute, they look like they've got all our gas and lights on and gold and whatnot. Why don't we have that? And they're going to go, well, because they're evil, actually. You wouldn't want to be like them. Yeah. You'd rather be poor and moral, wouldn't you? Yeah. There's a common from, comment from a name which uh, I'm not familiar with, so I, I don't know if he's a first-time commenter or, or, or comments infrequently, but something like Simon... Uh, he, might, he might be first-time because of the uh, code yes. Sargon. Something like Simon Ongsky, um, who basically um, has a comment, which I don't think I will read out, but he, he's basically, it's worth looking at, but it's, it's basically highlighting the crimes of this particular SS unit, and um, he, he's listing some completely horrific stuff that, that's mentioned in there. Um, crimes against um, women and children. Um, it was a systematic campaign against a number of um, um, of the Polish people, an entire region. Um, multiple massacres. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's not pleasant stuff. But no, he he highlights the serious nature that you know this. Um, uh, oh, actually, no, he's, he's he's not just talking about this this particular regime, but sort of Ukrainian nationalists in general under Bandera. Um, oh, yeah, that's a name that well, we do, hear. Do you want to do you want a dark joke to cheer you up a little bit? Um, so George has said, "Whoever stops clapping first for the old Nazi will be called a racist and put into maid." <laughs> I mean, at least Canada's. Oh, I suppose Canada's government does have a final solution for its critics, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Anyway, Charlie, onto onto your yes, stuff before indeed. we run out of time. Uh, so Ryan Redacted says, "Regulations are killing so many important things in our nation. Farms, pubs, and many other culturally and traditionally important institutions are being absolutely decimated by the useless bureaucrats in Number Ten. As Charlie said." <clears throat> You can't describe the feeling these places create on a spreadsheet. The management class can't understand why their sanitized, safe world is crushing people's spirit. I think that's absolutely right. And that's the thing with these things. We call them industries like farming uh, and like uh, hospitality and all the rest of it. Um, But to just reduce them down to being a purely industrial process does take a lot out of it because it is a spiritual uh, thing, I think, as well. It's important. These things are important to the spirit of our nation. Um, There are sort of... Um, irreplaceable part of it, and once it's gone, you, you can't get it back because yep. you, you don't. You can't just, um, you know, it's, it's th- literally thousands it's of years of tradition. of it as well. It's it's like it used to be: go to the pub and mix with other people when you're at the bar. But now mm. it's stay at your table and order on the app and have them brought over to you. Yes, it's complete atomization. And don't even look. Level. Don't even look at the person bringing it to you either. You don't yes. even have to have a conversation. Yep. You just drop it on the table yep. and, and gone. Um, Severian Knox says, "Well, pub and church were two sides of the same coin. They killed church and spiritual bonding. Now they killed carnal bonding. Indeed. Well, there's a pub that I." frequent in my uh, on the coast of my home county of Kent that's literally connected to a church um, and they're you know built at the same time out of the same materials um, and that church has been I don't think it, it doesn't have a, a vicar um, and it's not well you can go in but it's it doesn't have, ever have wedding services or anything like that um, and this pub is uh, it's a great place but I think they're struggling as well as, this is why the Catholics are, are correct about alcohol consumption and mass on Sundays just saying 
<laughs> Maybe. Uh, Sophie Lives says, it makes me sad. I'm not even English, and I love the pubs in England. I love the culture of just sitting down in the afternoon with a cold one in this uniquely English atmosphere. It is a legit it is legit like a window into the past. I have spent afternoons just getting to talk to some old Englishmen at the pub who are so excited to tell this Danish visitor about what real English food culture is. Pubs are great. They are uniquely English. If they went away, it would be a true loss. And that's the other thing when I was going around doing these interviews. I had this real sense in my mind that when I was in those pubs talking to those people, I was in England, right? Mm. In a way that you're not when you're in London, for example. Um, you know, you are, I was deep in the heart of England, like sort of metaphysically speaking. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, whereas when you're in a, if you're in like a central London Weatherspoons, you're not really in England. And, and it goes the other way as well. When I sometimes travel around the world and I go into, um, you know, a, a chain brand mm. on the other side of the world and it's like you stand here and you think I'm, I'm thousands of miles away from the West, but uh-huh. where am I? I mean, yeah. it's just this. It's, it's, you're in America. That's where you are. Um, it's the global version versus the uniqueness of the British. Yes. Yeah. yeah. On that, I do, I, I rail on the Americans a lot and I realize that and people complain about it. And Americans, I just want you to understand, I'm not talking about individual Americans. I'm talking about the global American empire. Some, I assume, are good people. Exactly. So when you were talking about the factory in town yeah. um, and going into these shops that are sort of anywhere shops, I do think of that as basically being, it's just expressions of American dominance because yeah. it's always American yeah. brands. Why is Kentucky Fried Chicken yeah. in the Swindon Railway Works? Indeed. It's, yes. it's colonialism. And why did They're you have your lunch there? I didn't eat it. <laughs> no, no, I, was, I, I was the only one that abstained. Ah, Dan okay. ate, ate the American slop. Yeah. Well, I was a bit peckish. Yeah, there you go. Um, with that, I think... John is going to cry if we keep him at his desk any longer. Oh, gentlemen, pleasure. As always, fun show. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow at one o'clock. If it hasn't convinced you to sign up to the website yet, you can still use code SARGON for all the gold tier content. Keep yourself busy until that happens. But um, Well done for being a subscriber. You are the master aced. Yeah, well, you Mm. keep the lights on. Brilliant. Right, well, thanks very much. Goodbye. Thanks, chaps.